Amen. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. Today we are in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. 2 Peter 3, and we're going to read together verses 8 through 13. This is God's holy word for us, his people, today. The word of God says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word for us today. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we ask that you would open up your scriptures to us, that you would break forth from your word, reveal yourself to us through this word. Write your truth upon our hearts. Bless now, we pray, not simply the reading, but now especially the preaching. And may the Holy Spirit take control of this word and do with it what he will. Help me to get out of the way and just let your word speak for itself today because we want to hear from you, not from me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In November, as you know, we are doing a follow-up series on our October series, which was the Five Solas of the Reformation. And what we're doing, what we've been doing in this little mini-series before we get to Advent, next couple of weeks, is we've been looking at examples of Reformations in the Bible and what we can learn from them for our church, for our Christian lives and for seeing Reformation in our own generation. So in the first sermon, this is the third, in the first, we looked at an Old Testament Reformation under King Josiah. Remember, they found the Bible that they had lost inexplicably. It was tucked away in a drawer in the temple somewhere. They found it, and it brought about repentance, and it brought about Reformation, and it brought about the renewal of God's people 
under King Josiah. We then last week looked at a New Testament Reformation, the Reformation that Jesus brought. In Hebrews 9, the Bible says that Jesus came as a reformer, not just Luther, not just Calvin, not just sort of the Protestant heroes we look back on, but Jesus was a reformer in first century Judaism, and he brought about a complete reformation of the priesthood. He's now the high priest. There aren't any more. He brought about a reformation of the sacrificial system. We don't have to offer any animals this morning to worship God. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we can just go right to God. Why? Because Jesus is the sacrifice. And remember what happened? The veil in the temple was torn in two. So now we can go right in. Not just the high priest once a year, but Jesus changed everything. And now we can worship God in spirit and in truth. What a reformation that was. This week, we come to another Reformation. Today, we're going to look at a Reformation in the Bible that hasn't happened yet. This is a final Reformation that is still out in the future. The last and greatest Reformation of them all. In our passage this morning, we learn about the second reformation of Jesus. The reformation he will bring about at his second coming. See, Jesus brought reformation to the people of God in his first coming, which we looked at last week from Hebrews 9, but he's not finished. He will bring reformation again in his second coming. Not only to his people this time, but to the entire world. This future reformation will be cosmic in scope, and it will be eternal. Jesus will return one day, as we confessed earlier in the Apostles' Creed, from thence he will come to do what? To judge the living and the dead. Jesus will return one day and he will usher in the eternal earthly kingdom when he arrives. And this will be a day of deliverance for his people as we read in our Old Testament reading from the prophet Micah. This will be a tremendous day of deliverance where God will judge for us on that day. For those who belong to God, judgment's not a scary word. It's a gospel word. It's a salvation word because he judges for us, not against us. But that will be a day of destruction, not deliverance for his enemies. So we need to decide what team we're on today. It will be too late to decide then. The day Jesus will, returns will be the day of judgment. And in our passage, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us three crucial things that we need to know about that coming judgment, that day of future reformation. He tells us about, number one, the delay of judgment. Number two, the day of judgment itself and then number three, the demand of judgment. Delay, 
the day and the demand of judgment. That's what we're going to look at this morning from our text. And as we study the scriptures this morning, we learn that because Jesus will surely return in judgment to reform the world forever, we must live now in holy anticipation of that coming world. Let's begin then with number one, the delay of judgment. Our text picks up in the middle of a thought that begins all the way back in verse one. You can see in the ESV, the first verse of our passage, verse eight, starts with the word but. But do not overlook this one fact. So he's in the middle of a thought. Something just came before, and we need to back up and catch what he's talking about. What Peter says in our passage is prompted by a problem that his readers are facing, and he wants to speak into that problem. So let's back up to verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 and see the context. Back up to chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He wants us to remember something. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. One of which we read this morning from Micah, but there are many others. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles Knowing this, first of all, he says, here's some, here comes the problem, that scoffers will come. When? In the last days. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Scoffers. Now, this is relevant to Peter's readers this is not relevant to people 2,000 years later only, or maybe people 2,000 years ahead of us. This was relevant to Peter's readers. The last days have been going on since the first century. We've been in the last days for a long time. Because last days doesn't mean a quantity of time, it's a quality of time. What kind of time are we in on God's prophetic timetable? We're in the last period where all the final prophecies are about to be fulfilled. So this is relevant to them. Scoffers are going to come to you, Christian, and they are going to scoff about the last days. What are they going to say? Look at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The world's still trucking along. The world's still moving at the same old pace. Scoffers in the last days will come who will mock Christians who are looking forward to the return of Christ. And they'll say, yeah, where is it? Doesn't look to me like he's coming back. Nothing's any different to me. That's their argument. Look around you, Christian. Look, everything's been going on the same since creation started. 
No sign of stopping anytime soon. The world keeps going around the sun. Of course, they didn't know that yet. We know that now. The world keeps on moving around. Sun and stars, day and night, morning and evening, seasons come and go. I mean, it's just the same old, same old. Nothing's changed since the beginning. What makes you think something's going to change? And you know, mockers today are no different, are they? They say the same things today. Take a look around you, Christians. It's been 2,000 years. The world's a mess. Everything's continuing on like it always has. He's not coming. 2,000 years, give it up. Who knows how many thousand more? Mockers and scoffers. And today, we too can be tempted by this same problem. We can be tempted today to doubt, to fear, to get swept up in the world, and to get caught in our own cultural moment, and get so overwhelmed with where our civilization is now that we just, we live and we lose sight of the future reformation that's coming when Jesus returns. We can get so caught up in how bad it is that we forget the promises yet to come. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Not everything's been fulfilled yet. There's still more to come. And it's the, it's the good stuff. We've had some good stuff already. There's some good stuff coming. That's the problem Peter tries to address. That's our problem. Especially now. They didn't have Twitter, <laughs> or X, whatever it is now. They didn't have 24-7 news covered and satellites and all. I mean, they got like one one-thousandth of the information we did about the stuff going on around them, and it took weeks for people to, for something to happen in the Middle East, someone to, to take a boat <laughs> all the way over to Rome or over to Spain and say, guess what happened in, in the Middle East a year ago? <laughs> you know, it would take people a long time to find out stuff. We know it instantly, and we're instantly depressed <laughs> right away <laughs> and we react in the moment Peter wants to say slow down guys slow down look what's coming Peter's response to this problem this challenge from mocking unbelievers and the potential worries of doubting Christians his response to this is twofold here in this first point his response is twofold first Peter Number one, he acknowledges there's a delay. Judgment is delayed. No argument there. He acknowledges the delay of judgment. It's real. Judgment didn't fall immediately. Judgment still hasn't fallen. That second coming, that final day, it's not here yet. It is on a delay. He acknowledges the delay of judgment. But he wants us to understand two things about the delay of judgment. Number one, the delay is planned. The delay is planned. Look at verse 8 in the first part of verse 9, first half of verse 9. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact. These scoffers are saying this and that. He's not coming. Everything's been going on since the beginning the same. He ain't coming. Give it up. Ah, but hold on. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day 
is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The Lord's not being lazy. He's not getting slack. He's not being forgetful. He forgot to look at his Google app to remind him, ooh, second coming was last week. My bad. Jesus, <laughs> we're behind. Hmm? He's not slow as some count slowness. He wants us to know this delay is planned. And what he does in verse 8 is he appeals to the divine relativity of time. Now, some of you know I really love physics. I don't know much about physics. <laughs> I'm not about to go change jobs anytime soon. But I really find it fascinating. Cosmology, astronomy, physics, good stuff. And one of my favorite movies, probably my favorite movie right now, is Interstellar. Who's seen Interstellar? I mean, it's three hours, so only John has seen Interstellar. <laughs> only John. Thank you for coming back from college to help me out. Good timing. Interstellar is three hours. It's so good. Oh, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway and Matt Damon. Oh, it's just, it's out of this world. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Interstellar, out of this world? No? Okay. There's one part of this movie where they're on a mission. They have to go down to Miller's planet. Miller is a woman who's landed there by herself. She's scoping it out. They're looking for a planet that could be a new home for people on Earth who have to leave. Earth is about to be uninhabitable. So they have, they're looking for these planets in this other galaxy. And so one of the options, they sent astronauts to different planets. One of them, Miller, she went down to one particular planet. It's just called Miller's Planet. And they are, they're following her, her, her beacon, her signal, that's saying, hey, this looks like it might be a, a good candidate. So they're going to pick her up, get her data, and, and figure out, is this the new home for humanity? We can get everybody off Earth and go to Miller's planet. And so they have a problem because Miller's planet doesn't orbit a star. It orbits a black hole. And that means that time moves differently on Miller's planet. The coolest thing is this is not sci-fi. This is real physics. This is actual factual science. Real stuff. We have equations and everything that proves all this stuff. It, it's real. Time doesn't move at one rate for the universe. For us, it just ticks by. You know, I'm watching the clock. It's ticking. Time is relative for me up here. No, it's not. <laughs> it's ticking by, right? It's ticking by. But clocks in a satellite, a GPS satellite, ticks at a different rate than your watch does. And neither of them are right and neither are wrong. <laughs> it's relative. Time is relative. Time can be changed by gravity and velocity. If you approach the speed of light, your clock will move slower. You will age slower than everybody else. So on Miller's planet, they're like, we got to get down there quickly and get her and get back up because on Miller's planet, time moves like this. For every hour on that planet, seven years goes by on the spaceship. 
Well, what do you think happens? It's a good movie. They go down there, there's a problem. Big wave hits the spaceship, floods the engines, and they're stranded for a little while. They have to wait for the engines to drain. And by the time they get back to the shuttle, they left one person on the shuttle. By the time they get back, they've only been down there for just about three hours. But 23 years has gone by on the spaceship. 23 years. Now, think about God's time. It's not the same as our time. Clocks in heaven tick at a different rate than ours. Peter here is quoting Psalm 90, verses 2 through 4. And what he's driving at is that for God, he's eternal. <laughs> Daniel calls him the ancient of days. When a thousand years on earth goes by, it's just been a day for God. Now, I don't know if this is literal. His point is, a long time on earth is nothing to God. He's not in a hurry. Because on God's time, Jesus just got back about two days ago. Came to earth, incarnation, death, resurrection. He's only been home two days. Give him time. <laughs> He's not in a hurry. 2,000 years is two days to God. And in fact, he says in verse 9, he is not slow, he's patient. He's patient, which means the delay is planned. Time moves differently for God than it does for us. He's on a different schedule than we are. When we check our clock, it's not the same time for him. 2,000 years to him is nothing. It's a couple of days. Everything is on a schedule. On his calendar, by his watch, everything's right on time. The delay of judgment is not like the delay of a flight at the airport. Where it's like, what is holding up this plane? My goodness, we got a, we got a connecting flight. We got to go, we got to go. No. Anything else that gets delayed, it's a problem. For God, it's part of the plan. It's planned delay. The delay of judgment is not him being slow, it's him being patient. You can see this back in chapter 2, in verse 3, where he says, talking about false prophets, he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's planned. The day just hasn't come yet in God's calendar. But it's circled, and it's coming. So number one, about the delay of judgment. The delay is planned. But number two, the delay is purposeful. It's for a reason. Look at verse 9 again, the whole verse. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Here's the purpose. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God patient in fulfilling his promise? Why is it farther out by our clock, 2003, who knows how long? Why is it farther out? It's because God 
It's because God is giving people a chance to repent. God is patient in fulfilling his promise of the second coming of Christ. And God delays his judgment for the purpose of salvation. There is a window of grace that is open to a perishing world. There is a pause in the plan to allow a moment of mercy. If you skip ahead of our text into verse 15, Peter tells his readers, count the patience, there's our word again, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Why is he patient? It's a window of mercy not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And yes, God has an elect people, and He is giving plenty of time for His people to hear the gospel and believe, but it's, it's bigger than that. Too often as Reformed folks, we just go, oh, it's just the elect. God doesn't love anybody else. No, slow down a minute. God's favorite activity is not judgment. condemnation and death and destruction and hell. That's not his favorite part. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 who need no repentance, Jesus said. Judgment's not God's favorite activity. He actually loves mercy and his favorite thing to do is to forgive. That's his favorite thing. Now, if God just stood back and let the whole world decide for themselves, no extra grace, no extra help, no, no Calvinism, <laughs> nobody would be saved. That's how lost and sinful we are. And so God has a people that he has chosen to be his. But never make this mistake. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that God also elects people to damn them. There are Calvinists in the past who have said that. I'm not one of them. Election is always an act of grace. Predestinating people to salvation, to eternal life. That's what you're elected for. God doesn't have to go, hmm, here's all these innocent people. Hmm, heaven, 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 hell, hell. It's not, or he's picking people to, to roast. It's not that. It's that he looks at a world that's absolutely lost in sin, fist clenched in rebellion against God, cannot obey God, don't want to obey God, don't come to the light, hate the light, would rather spend eternity away from him, and he graciously saves a people for himself. But he doesn't slam the door in anybody else's face. The gospel is always there as a well-meant offer. He leaves. Why is he delaying his judgment? Because God is love, and God is merciful, and judgment's not his favorite activity. That's not the part he's most excited about. Now, he does it purposefully, willingly, but it's an act of judgment that is just and deserved. It's not this big game he's playing where he enjoys torture or something. Let's get our God right. He does not enjoy the perishing of the world. It's not his favorite part. There's a pause for mercy so that people have a chance to repent and be saved, so that when they refuse... It's all the more deserving, the judgment they get. That's the delay of judgment. The delay of judgment is planned, and it is purposeful. People have an opportunity to repent and not perish. But the day of judgment will finally come. 
The date on God's calendar will arrive. The time of mercy will end. The future reformation will begin. And we learn several things about now point to the day of judgment. We learn in verses 10 and 12 to 13. We don't have time to spend forever on these. I had a good time this week preparing this, looking at all the verses and all the stuff. There's a lot we could say, but let me just summarize for us now. Several things we learn about the day of judgment itself. And here's number one. Number one, the day will be unexpected. It's going to be unexpected. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus says the same thing. It's going to come like a thief. Right? What's the thief? What's his advantage? His advantage is that he catches you when you're least expecting him. The element of surprise. Someone doesn't wait for you to be home next to your gun closet to break in. <laughs> That's right. That wouldn't make any sense. Now, the thief waits until you're out of the way and he sneaks in and you don't expect it. And the day will come. Christ will sneak up on people. They won't see it coming. You know why? Because they're too busy mocking and scoffing. Ah, where's the promise of his coming? Forget it. He's not coming. And when they least expect it, there will be. And then it'll be too late. The day will be unexpected. It will surprise people. When it looks the least likely, bam. It'll overtake people. That's number one. The delay, oh, excuse me, the day is unexpected. You can't predict it. Number two, the day will be a judgment by fire. A judgment by fire. If you back up to verse seven, it says this. It says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If you look at verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's going to be a judgment by fire. The old world was destroyed with water, but the new world... The world after that, the world that now exists, is a different judgment coming, not water. The world will be engulfed, not with water, but with fire, the fire of judgment. Now this, number three, number one, the day will be unexpected. Number two, the day will be a judgment by fire. Now number three, the, this fire of judgment will do three things. What will the fire do? Three things. Number one, it will destroy the un godly, as we just saw in verse 7. Heaven and earth is being kept until the day of judgment and the day of the destruction of the ungodly. Or as he says it in a different way in verse 10, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The earth of unbelieving, ungodly humanity and all of their ungodly works, they will be burned up. It is a judgment that's coming upon the ungodly. A day of doom, a day of destruction, of cloud and thick darkness, the prophets say. It is a day of mourning and gloom. 
a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of wailing. It's a day when the ungodly finally run out of mercy, when the window is closed to accept grace, to repent at that point. It's too late, and the ungodly will be judged by fire, the destruction of the ungodly. The fire of judgment will do three things. First, destroy the ungodly, but second, dissolve the present world. Did you catch this in verse 10? The heavens will pass away. The heavens, not just people. The heavens will pass away with a roar. I'm imagining like, <laughs> okay, this is a silly example of a serious point. In the movie uh, Christmas Vacation, <laughs> Whenever Arthur is smoking his pipe and that dry tree is behind him and he throws his, his match and you just hear, <laughs> this, this whole tree just absolutely goes up in a roar. That's what I'm picturing, okay? A roar of a flame just engulfing something, except on a cosmic scale, the heavens just whoosh, a roar of flame engulfing everything, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And then he says in verse 12, he says that the, 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 mentions the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. They'll melt as they burn. This is predicted by the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1, who says that a day is coming that will burn like an oven. It's going to be the dissolution of the heavens and the earth as we know them. And there's a reason for this. I don't know exactly how absolutely literal this is. It could be a something of a picturesque way of describing something literal. And here at least I think is the literal part, is that the heavens and the earth as they now exist are not fit to last forever. Back to physics. In interstellar, earth is no longer inhabitable. It's just eons in the future, and it's dying. The sun in our solar system is not eternal. It came into being. And it will run down, scientists tell us. And eventually it runs out of heat and the sun itself will die and the solar system that we know will cease to exist. No more sun, no more gravity, no more heat, no more light. And it is the end of the Milky Way galaxy. And eventually all the stars will run down. Entropy is real. Everything is going to grind to a halt and the universe is expanding. And it will eventually, after... 20, 100 million, gajillion years, it'll just be so far expanded, everything will be too far apart, no more heat, no more life, no more light, and eventually after some gigajillion years, the black holes themselves will dissolve, and it'll just be nothing forever unless something changes. Our bodies are not fit to live forever. Our world is not fit to live forever. So what needs to happen is God has to take the universe and sort of melt it down and form a new heavens and a new earth out of it. Down to the very elements, the atomic nature of reality, of physical reality has to change so that it will now be new and immortal. We'll have new bodies. I mean, the atoms themselves will defy death and will not let you die. 
On a physical level, everything's got to change. So will there be a literal, you know, whoosh and the fire and, and, and like literal melting? I don't know. But what is true is the fire of purification will change the very fabric of reality so that it's fit for the sons of God to inhabit forever. That's what's got to happen. The fire of judgment is our fire of deliverance. It's going to destroy the ungodly, but it is going to purge and purify the heavens and the earth. You know, in the flood of Noah, yeah, water covered the earth and got things soaked and it wiped out sinners, but eventually the water subsided and we realized, yeah, the flood wiped out sinners, but it couldn't wash away sin. And the flood sure made a difference on what the earth looked like. And it wiped out all but a few people on the ark. But those people on the ark were sinners. And they repopulated a world of sinners. And death was still real. And sin was still real. And what this is going to do, this fire, it's going to purge the earth of its curse entirely. No more sin and no more death. And just like the earth in Genesis 1 emerged out of the water and then it was submerged again in the flood and then the flood waters went away and a new earth emerged almost like a second creation that was a picture of what's coming in our future and there won't be a need for another another a take three after this what's going to happen is the fire will engulf and transform and melt and burn and reform everything into a new, a new world. And out of that fiery world will emerge a new heavens and a new earth. And that's the last point here under the day of judgment. The day will be unexpected. It will be a day of judgment by fire. The fire of judgment will do these three things. It will destroy the ungodly. It will dissolve the present world. It will deliver the world from the curse forever. And finally, number four here, the day of judgment is going to be a day in which a new world emerges. Verse 13 of our text. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's going to make all things new. Who's the agent of, the, of this judgment of God, this cosmic judgment of God? It's Jesus. He brings the fire at his second coming. We don't have time to go to it now, but check out later 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 and see how Paul describes the fiery return of Christ. A new world will emerge where there will be no death, no sin, no curse forever. A new heavens and a new earth is coming. That's a radical reformation. <laughs> He's going to reform everything. And that brings us to our last point. We've seen the delay of judgment. We've seen the day of judgment. Now, finally, crucially, the demand of judgment. It's important to realize, Christian, that knowing the future has effects on the present. Knowing the future has effects on the present. Knowing what is ahead should change the way we live and think in the present. The way we interpret the times we live in. 
the way we experience the world around us. The day of judgment makes demands on us in the present. If this is true, something should be true for us now. And Peter lays this out for us in our last point this morning. Peter lays out two demands in our text, two ways that the future reformation of Jesus should reform our lives today. And let's look briefly at, the, at these together. Two demands. Number one, the demand of holy living. Verse 11, right in the middle of the text. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Not hopefully, not maybe, but since. It's, it's a guarantee. Since we know all these things are thus to be dissolved, then Peter asked this rhetorical question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since this stuff is true, what sort of people ought we to be now? Since that is true out there, how does it make demands of us in the present? It tells us that we should be hunkered down in holiness. <laughs> Living in holiness and in godliness. Pursuing holiness and godliness in our lives. A life of obedience. A life lived with the Lord. A life that's on his side, not the side of his enemies. How ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Or as he says a little further, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Knowing that he's coming and he's going to, Examine us and look at us and judge us too. We want to be found obedient. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not the one that says, Lord, Lord, I thought you knew me. I thought this and that. Look at all the stuff I did in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. Never had a relationship with you. You worker of lawlessness, of iniquity. So we want to live in that fellowship of Christ now. We want to know him now. So he's not a stranger when he comes. And we're not strangers to him. But know him now. Live with him now. Pursuing holiness in his presence. Pursuing godliness in his will. That's what we want to do, Peter says. The judgment out in front of us demands that we live like it's really coming. It's a real judgment. So be holy. Be diligent to live in a way that understands how real the judgment is. That's the first demand of judgment. And the last demand of judgment for us this morning. The demand of holy living, number one, but then number two and finally, the demand of eager waiting. Oh, this is a good one, a good place to end. The demand of eager waiting. Advent is in a couple of weeks when we talk about this topic, but why wait? The demand of eager waiting, verse 12 well, only verse we haven't really covered yet. First part of the verse. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 11 and then verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Waiting for and hastening. Waiting for. Eager waiting. 
And now this hastening is not us tapping our watches and being like the mockers and scoffers. Come on, Jesus. What's the delay? Let's go. (laughs) Not impatience. He's being patient. So he calls for us to be patient. It doesn't mean we're hastening like hurry up, hurry up. It means we're just eager. We're so excited for when he's going to come. It gives us a thrill. We are eagerly waiting. How good will it be, Christian, when Jesus reappears, when he finally comes, and you see him? Don't you want to see him? (laughs) That's what we're living for and living towards. We We know a new world's coming in which righteousness dwells, so let's start living like we're there. Let's start living like people from the future, like people who belong to that world. Let's do it now. Yeah, you'll look funny to the world around you. That's where the mockers and scoffers are. So, you know what's coming. So let it give you courage and boldness to endure the snickers and the, and the laughter and the dismissal of a culture that's drifting further away from Christianity. So? I mean, yeah, it's important on one level, but for this topic, so? Who cares if they look at you funny when you pray before your meal? Who cares? We know where we're going and we know what's coming. We're eagerly waiting And we are excited to see him. Christian, because Jesus will surely return in judgment to reform the world forever, we must live in holy anticipation of that coming world. Let me close with a a verse from 1 John. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Let's close with this. John says, Beloved, we are God's children right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Oh, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure knowing that he's coming, knowing you're going to see his face, makes you want to be holy when you look at him. So, oh, let us live in this glorious hope, Christian, not doubting the promise of his return, but looking and longing for that day and living for that day in holiness when we will see him face to glorious face. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this promise. Thank you for reassuring us that the delay is planned and purposeful, that there's a window of mercy and that all of us have an opportunity to repent. Help us to get so eager and excited about that coming day that the way we live now is reformed, that it's changed that we live more in holiness and godliness, and that we get some holy anticipation for what's ahead of us. Help us to pray for the return of Jesus and to look forward to it and to live like we know it's coming. Help us to live out of that place of such joy and anticipation for what's coming ahead. Help us to love Jesus 
the one who is coming back for us, knowing that we will be with him forever. Let that thought thrill us today on this Lord's day and let it change us tomorrow when we get up and face the world. We ask it in Jesus' name.